This is Bedside, a podcast series on a mission to debunk sex. I'm your host, Tatiana, and each week we'll uncover stories, ideas, routines, and expert information to help guide you on your ever-evolving journey of good sex. We believe that through democratizing sexual wellness, we can shift cultural taboos and make way for authentic and limitless access to pleasure, joy, and connection to the body. Today, I'm in conversation with Emily DePass, a sexologist, relationship and sex therapy graduate from Widener University, and a leading expert on STI stigma. Emily niches in STI and STD education, and it was after a herpes diagnosis five years ago that she started an online community called Sex Education, unpacking and redefining society's narratives around STIs, also known as sexually transmitted infections. On today's episode, we go deep into Emily's own journey, learning of a positive herpes status and her own internalized stigma toward it. Emily shares with Bedside how we can have better sexual health discussions, disclosure, and breaking the ice in the bedroom for better sex. We talk about how COVID isn't so different from discussing a sexual health status and how to confidently talk to doctors and, of course, break down the infamous cold sore and what it really is. Whether or not you've had a positive STI status or know a friend or partner who has, we want you to know that you're not alone. With Emily's background rooted in interdisciplinary trauma-informed approach to sexuality and relationships, this episode is going to leave you feeling informed, empowered, and ready to have important dialogue and insight around your sexual health. Please welcome Emily DePass. Emily, thank you so much for coming on the show today. This has been a really long time coming. We were briefly chatting last week over text and saying how we could just talk for hours on end. So I'm just really looking forward to our conversation today. So thank you for coming. Oh my gosh, I've been looking forward to it all week. How are you holding up in the pandemic? Like, how are you doing right now? I think... I, I'm, I'm okay. I've learned a lot about myself through being forced into abrupt changes. Usually I'm someone who needs some time to prepare for said changes. Mm. Uh, so throughout the pandemic, for example, you know, we started working from home immediately and that was, that was great. But then all of a sudden, you know, you don't have your coworkers and you realize how much you miss that and you don't have your gym routine and you realize how much you miss that. And then my apartment flooded Uh, And so I was living in my bedroom, you know, living, working out, working in my bedroom for a month, which was really prop. That was probably the lowest point of my time in the quarantine. Oh, my gosh. Um, But I'm in a much better place now. Like I said, I've you know, I'm a generally a self-aware person, but it really it's taught me a lot about myself, what I want 
in life, what I can push myself through, what I need support in. So I'm grateful for that in some sense. I like your point there. Like it's it's definitely shown us how resilient we can be, but also like you just said, like realizing where you need support and how you can get that for yourself. Especially because you know, community, I I was involved, you know, with my gym and yoga studios and various friend groups. And although you have those connections via social media and Zoom chats, it becomes very uh, fatiguing. You know, you get tired and you're staring at a screen and it's not the same as human connection. It's not the same as reaching out and getting a high five from your gym partner or getting an assist in a yoga class. This is now my home base. This is my study space. This is my workspace. This is my gym, my yoga studio all in one. So navigating that has been a lesson in self-awareness, self-respect, and my own boundaries. I love that so much. And you are like the queen of boundaries, which I can't wait to Thank chat, you. chat with you about. Oh. <laughs> you really are like, I, and you can see it in your, in your online presence too, but I can like even tell from our own friendship where you just are so good at defining what is right for you and what your values are and not letting those boundaries be crossed. Um, Thank you. Yeah. So, I mean, hey, we'll, we'll get into that later, but just so for those who don't know who Emily is, Emily is a sexologist and sex educator who specifically niches in STI stigma, conversation, and of course, education. Your page is called Sex Education, and it's gained a whopping 40K followers who are total Emily loyalists. And before we get into everything today, I'd really love to know what led you to where you are today, because it is such a unique position to be in, especially as a sex educator. So tell me everything from growing up to what led to the conception of sex education. So if we go way back, uh, I was Catholic school from pre-K to high school. My parents let me choose, you know, what high school I wanted to go to, although they did provide my education, my Catholic education. They were very firm in that from a young age, but I actually chose to go to Catholic high school. Um, I think that was just more of my preference and my comfort level. I'm not someone who takes a lot of risks, and I I didn't know what to expect with public school. And interestingly, in my first year of high school, I went to an all-girls Catholic school and quickly learned that it was not the environment for me. (laughs) But in in all of these spaces, what was absent was sexuality education, sex ed. The sex ed that I did receive in my youth was abstinence only, fear based. And to be honest with you, I don't even think my middle school talked about STIs. They were really heavy on anti abortion and uh, preserving penetrative sex between a penis person and a vulva person for marriage and for procreation. There were no discussions of pleasure. We were separated by gender was, you know, the typical sex ed in Catholic school. And so I actually entered college as an elementary education major, but quickly learned that there were other options available to me. I became interested in mental health and psychology because I have a history with general anxiety and wanted to help people like myself. So I I remained undeclared for a couple years. I moved from psych I moved to sociology. I moved around the majors. (laughs) And then in a sociology of gender class, I learned that being a sex therapist was a thing that I could do. Who knew? Being a sex therapist, sex educator was a real live thing. So from that moment, I changed my major to gender and sexuality studies and started focusing my path to being a sex therapist. 
And originally, my focus was going to be on how body image affected women's sexuality, just from my own experience, because I struggled a lot with myself and my partners in terms of pleasure and just reaching that and allowing myself to be vulnerable in those spaces. But after I graduated, all confident and ready to take on the world with my ideas, two or three months after I graduated, I got herpes. And, you know, I, I look back on myself now and I'm like, come on, Emily, like, get up. What are you, what were you doing? But that experience was really important for me on my journey to creating sex education because it taught me what I was missing in my education and it taught me what I was missing, what everyone was missing in their education and even in the most comprehensive sex ed spaces. So I reached this low point and, you know, you go through all these questions in your head, like, where did I get it from? Who did I get it from? How did I get it? And you move to this kind of mirroring reflection of what does this mean for me? It was in these moments that I really learned the internalized stereotypes and stigmas that I held about people with STIs and what that meant. And I was really struggling to conceptualize my future in them because I, in my mind, I didn't match up to what I thought someone with an STI looks like or who they were or what their sexual history was. And, you know, this also speaks to stereotype, you know, like the sex workers and things like that. So there was not only STI stigma, but some sex negativity there as well. And so it really began this process of unlearning. And so began my niche in STIs. So I've always wanted to be a sex therapist, but this just really gave me a focus and something I was so passionate about changing. And I saw and still see the necessity of the conversations I'm having, especially with COVID now too. Yeah. I mean, you just, you, you've been writing a lot um, in the media. I know you were just featured in Philly Inquirer. First off, congratulations. Um, Thank you. And I see the way that you, even on Twitter, will talk to people. Who was it? Was it Seth Meyers? I can't remember who. Jimmy Kimmel. Jimmy Kimmel, who made a herpes joke. And you, you know. Oh, yeah. I wrote a whole article about him, too. Yeah. <laughs> SNL. Yes, SNL. Like, it's just, is that funny? Yeah, yeah. And so and and I love that you are out there really applying it to where the taboos actually live in our media, right? Like you're taking it out of conversation amongst someone at the doctor or between partnerships and you're really bringing it to the way that we stereotype. Right. But so getting a, a herpes diagnosis... You were, how old were you? 22. I was a baby. And that's like, I mean, it, it's hard to process that for yourself, but also um, how to communicate that with the outside world. So tell me, like, where was Emily when she first discovered she had herpes? Was she devastated? Was she uncertain? Where were you at? I was physically in a bedroom that I was living at at the time with a friend. Um, but I was by myself, but I was more of in a panic phase of what if it's herpes? Like I've never felt this before. You know, I'd never had an STI. I had UTIs, but I, I kept trying to convince myself. I, I think I was in a space of denial. It was like, well, I'm not the girl to get herpes. And, you know, I, I'd been with my partner before and I trusted them, uh, which I, you know, later learned that's not a great indicator for someone's STI status. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I, I was just like, it can't be, it can't be herpes. It, it might be the underwear. It, it's gotta be my underwear. It's a new song. Like it's definitely like the lace, something, it's an allergic reaction. Or, you know, let me Google and see. And I even told the doctors, like, oh, I, I don't think it's that. You know, I think it's this. And well, and the first doctor was like, I, I can't really tell. I'm going to send you to someone else. And I'm like, okay. So, like, there's still hope that it's not herpes, right? And she's like, yeah, that, like, it might not be herpes. And I'm like, great. Like, cool. A little relief. 
But then I went to the next doctor and she's like, well, this looks herpetic. And she's like, but don't worry, we're going to run some diagnostic tests and we'll, you know, get you your answer. But really throughout the whole process, it was a space of denial and immediate, almost like a feeling of societal social rejection, if that makes sense. Mm. What was the attitude of your doctors? So looking back, she was very clinical. You know, she wasn't harsh. She just was very matter of fact. And I I think she did everything, quote unquote, right. The nurse, I remember this one nurse, and I think she was trying so hard to be kind to me, but it felt fake. Mm. It It felt performative. And I didn't want her acceptance in that moment. And I've spoken to this before, but I really think during those moments, I think it's the time there's a need for a sexual health advocate. For example, someone who has more human sexuality knowledge and can not only speak to the biological aspects of an STI or any virus or infection, but can actually speak to, you know, what it, what it means, where we learn the shame from, where we get stigma some resources that we can turn to. You know, now we're lucky enough, there are so many herpes Instagram accounts and podcasts that people can actually have real resources to turn to as opposed to government guidelines and places where they might not see themselves. That's what I think is so cool with the work that you do. You've you've changed this very hyperclinical tone to a very relatable tone. And you see time and time again, the people who follow your work who do deal with a herpes diagnosis or um, any sort of STI diagnosis, they feel such relief. And I think Mm -hmm. you've created such a wonderful space where there is this like relatability because I know that like you've spoken to previously how you just went down this crazy like late night Google like internet obsession and I mean we've all been there we've all done that and so what were you seeing that made you really think there's absolutely a space for this well what I saw there you know other than Ella Dawson who I'm not sure if you're familiar with she has a TED talk and she had a blog about herpes that I found there was no one really as you say relatable it was all you know, internet forums of anonymous people that had herpes that talked about their experiences. There was a herpes guidebook entitled The Good News About the Bad News, which is, although it was helpful, it was also kind of a stigmatized title when you think about it. As to me, it's not bad news. (laughs) But there was a lot of labels there. The rabbit hole was truly a rabbit hole. There were a lot of questions that I had that didn't have answers. Mm -hmm. And the answers I found were, again, you know, they weren't really supported by research. There was a lot of opinions, you know, um, Tumblr was still a thing. So there were a lot of Tumblr accounts sharing information, but the information that I saw wasn't consistent or people dropped off the map or I just didn't get the answers I needed. And so I kept digging and found myself in actual scholarly scholarly research, which I'm thankful for because I know that not everyone has that access or that privilege. And as you say, I feel that I can turn that research and translate it into a really approachable resource for folks. And I think there's something to say for that. Like taking just the right information and converting it, not spreading misinformation. And that's something like people always ask me, 
well, what about HSV1 statistics, Emily? And I recently spoke out about this at an AMA and I said, you know, typically if I'm not posting something, you know, people don't read my captions a lot of the time, which is unfortunate because there's a lot of valuable information and perspective there. But that aside, people keep asking, what about HSV1? And I'm like, if, I, if I'm not posting something, there's typically a reason for that. You know, I'd like to say I have some basic, basic Herpes 101 posts. And even if you scroll back, you can find some. But there's the data isn't there for me to give to people that is a great resource to share with their partners. There's not enough statistics. There's not enough evidence. There aren't enough studies built up for that. And, you know, even in the studies that do exist, they're not typically inclusive. They're centered around heteronormative couples, Mm. uh, typically white couples. And so it's really hard to disseminate that in a way that's meaningful for everyone to share. I mean, just just off the bat, do you mind explaining the difference between HSV1 and HSV2 for those who aren't familiar? Sure. So HSV1 commonly known as cold sores or oral herpes can also present genitally. So if a partner performs oral sex on you and, you know, whether they have an outbreak or not, although it's more common to transmit if they do have an outbreak, you know, you could get genital herpes HSV1. HSV2 is more genital oriented, although there are rare cases of oral HSV1. Okay, got it. And then while we're out here defining, what is the difference between an STD and an STI? So I actually explained this in a college biology course. And I, in my research, like I said, it almost led to more questions than answers. Mm. And this was a question that I had. So most people know sexually transmitted disease and sexually transmitted infection. For me, I originally thought, well, it's just a more politically correct term. And um, the American Sexual Health Association, as well as the NIH, almost use the terms interchangeably. And the American Sexual Health Association also stated that there is some aspect of a more culturally sensitive word in STI, which I wholeheartedly agree and believe, because it's not, you know, we don't want to label someone as a disease or an infection, really, but it just, it just, it feels less clinical to me. If we get into the biology, which can be boring, you know, a pathogen will enter the body, for example, like herpes, and it makes itself a little home in its host, aka me or you or whomever, and an infection will result. Now, in some cases, for example, HPV, which is the most common STI, Uh, If the infection continues, it can turn into a disease like cancer. Mm. So for me, that's the real true clinical difference. But you'll see me in my work. I always refer to STIs because I just feel like it's a more inclusive, less stigmatizing term. And I find that most people agree. And, you know, if I use STD, it's not that I'm calling someone a disease or, you know, there's this weird hierarchy that people have with STIs, STDs, HSV1, HSV2. Um, so I'm very mindful of that, but I typically try to refrain from the STD language. It just feels very outdated to me. I, I actually agree with you. And I to me, it, it almost is just like STI just feels much more approachable. We've we've so tabooed STDs. It feels more human to me. It feels like, hey, like, yeah, like this is a statistic and it can happen to anybody. Agree. Human is a great word to describe it. So what are the statistics of STIs? Because I know you mentioned you when, when you were diagnosed with herpes, you were like, wait, 
I am not the image of someone who has an <laughs> STI. So, so, and I think a lot of people carry that, right? Or like they'll, right. they, they don't assume a partner that they're with or partners that they are with have that because they don't look or act a certain way or behave a certain way based off of the right. stigmas we've put behind it. So talk to me about like, what are the actual statistics of STIs and just what that so, is? So my favorite go-to statistic, and I want to preface all statistics by saying, you know, this is a represent a representative number. You know, to me, there are, because STIs are stigmatized, there are many more cases that we probably don't know that exist in addition to not all STIs being mandated reporting, for example, herpes. My favorite statistic to share is that one in two people, sexually active people, before the age of 25 will be diagnosed with an STI. And a lot of people are, you know, shocked by that. And I'm that one in two person, right? I was 22 when I got herpes. And so many people don't have presenting symptoms, which is another failure of sex education because we don't learn that an STI might be asymptomatic. We're only taught that people have genital ulcers or blisters or outbreaks and that, you know, we can look at someone and inspect their genitals and see that they have an STI, which really is untrue. And for me, that makes a case for how important our discussions between one another, not even just disclosures, just sexual health discussions are. I want to say there are around a million infections diagnosed across the globe daily. That's a World Health Organization statistic. But those are some of the great conversation starters to have with folks. You know, statistics to me are a pathway. It's That's not going to remove someone's stigma because there's often this aspect of denial and confrontation, self-confrontation. Like, there's no way. Like, no, that's that, you're just making that up. And then you really have to go into your own belief systems and say, wow, like you're actually right. And that's not an easy thing for a lot of people to do. I couldn't agree more. And I think like when I look back at my own journey towards sexual confidence, if you will, like I think (laughs) nowadays it's so easy for me to to have dialogue around this and the same for you. And it's because we've practiced this muscle in our work and also our real lives. But for those who are maybe not as comfortable talking and creating this dialogue, where do we begin, especially just the the beginning conversations with maybe even like someone who's a one night stand, not a consistent partner? Right. So for me, I think even to have those conversations, we have to get comfortable having them with ourselves. Like I said, the self-confrontation isn't an easy thing. Mm. There are still people, I've seen people on Instagram that check into COVID testing sites and say, you know, get tested, but they're hesitant to get an STI test or they've got internalized STI stigma. So I really think we have to sit with ourselves and ask ourselves if, you know, if I'm going to be engaging with partners and I, you know, I'm, I'm seeing these statistics, right? I've got my STI and sex ed 101 materials in front of me. I think we need to sit sit with that and digest a bit before we even consider engaging with partners, you know, in partnered sex. I, I also think people always make this such a clinical discussion, but I think pleasure is a really important piece of this too. It's it's kind of like you go into a sex sexual relationship, right? And you want to have this great sexual experience with your partners. But if you don't know what you like, how are they expected to know what you like too? Even if even if it is a one night stand, you know, I, I think knowing yourself and knowing your body is empowerment and being able to tell a partner, even if they're just that one night stand, hey, I like when you touch me here, or if you want to get me off, do this. Let's try this sex toy. But I, I think that takes a level of honesty of 
you know, even when I was speaking to myself, my younger self with my difficulty in sharing that piece of myself with partners or even myself, I really had to work on my self pleasure and self acceptance before I could experience the sexual connection that I craved. So for me with casual partners, I I think it's just a matter of saying, Hey, you know, I know this is a one night stand or I want this to be a friends with benefits situation. This is my STI. You know, I get tested regularly because I enjoy sex and I think I'd have great sex with you, but I really just want to know your sexual health background so we can have better sex, you know, make it about better sex. Don't make it about, it doesn't have to be this clinical, well, I have HSV1, what do you have? You know, there. I think there's more dialogue there than <laughs> we give people credit for. And I, you know, I think some of your earlier disclosures are probably more like, I have herpes and this is what that means. And yeah, you know, it's, it can be more, it can be awkward, like, like any first time of anything. But I think the more comfortable we start to get with ourselves and our bodies and what we like, we're able to integrate that better with our partners. Mm. And I really like your note on language because I think that the language around sex education and just around sex in general is so limited and Mm -hmm. it can feel like it can really quickly go to that clinical narrative. And and that's not something that makes a lot of people horny, right? Like, I get it. I get it. Like me showing you my STI test result is probably not going to make you feel like, oh, let's let's have sex right now. You know what I mean? Like, but I think I think there's a way to connect and integrate those conversations, especially the more that you have them and you get to learn a lot about other people's positions, um, their sexual health backgrounds, you know, by how they react to your authenticity and your ability to speak to these quote-unquote awkward conversations right like for me talking about herpes just isn't awkward anymore it's just not like it's what I do it's my life you can google me it's there but for a lot of people you know you hear the word herpes and I think herpes has its own special little stigma especially that word oh my god yes and and people are like oh herpes and I'm like yeah and and I'm like you know that reaction immediately tells me okay this person is probably working through some stigma themselves. You know, I can give them X amount of information, but you, you can't convince someone to meet you where you are, right? Like that's their journey. It's never an obligation, especially for people with STIs. You know, you can serve as a research resource for your partner. It's important to know your body and your stress responses and outbreaks, et cetera. But you are not the sole educator for their sex ed. That is not on you. It, it really is a tell-all too, like, who, who is this individual like you are going to be with or, or spend time with and, and what is their response, right? It's kind right. of like a, it really is a tell-all. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's a tool, you know? And if this person can't be honest with me about their sexual health, how can they, how can they be honest with me about what they want in bed? How can, how can they be honest about their pleasure? How can I know that they're going to, you know, receive me well or understand my pleasures? I like, I have to be able to talk about this with you. I just do. Yep. Couldn't agree more. So going to the doctor in general can be really nerve wracking around even just getting a workup done, like a panel to just check if you are if you have any STIs, STDs, herpes. And I know that is really nerve wracking to a lot of individuals. So how do we begin getting comfortable asking the right questions at the doctor? And you know, I think COVID is such a special time in our life for so many reasons. 
I think now is a great time to actually take advantage of our sexual health because telehealth assessments are accessible. You know, if you're someone that's just kind of starting to think, well, maybe I should get STI screenings more regularly. You know, even though it's COVID, we know people are just going to be people and they're still going to be sexually active if that's something they want. So we have to be prepared to support them in that, right? And have the safest sex that they can. So I think at-home STI tests are a great tool right now. And it might be some way to ease yourself and empower yourself too into a shame-free, less stigmatizing experience. Because to be honest with you, there are a lot of doctors that are still not up to date on sexual health terms, on gender identity, on sexual behaviors, you know, still prescribing monogamy to someone who gets herpes is unacceptable to me. That's just not inclusive or all-encompassing of who we are as humans. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think that's a really great stepping stone I think doing a little, because with those STI tests, some of them have herpes, some of them don't. And unfortunately, uh, I want to say that herpes tests are a bit more expensive, but you can t- you can go to a lab core or a place like that and have the test, because herpes is a blood test, you can have the test on there. But I, I think removing some of the opportunities for stigma presents a space for us to grow or kind of ease into our sexual knowledge. Maybe even looking at your medical records. Have you ever been tested for STIs? You know, before you go and judge someone, if they have herpes or HIV or what have you, how do you know you don't have it? Have you been tested? Mm. Um, you know, and that, that was my argument with Jimmy Kimmel. Like, dude, you probably didn't have a herpes test because it's typically not in a screening and it's often asymptomatic. So how would you know? How is that funny, right? So my that's my complex answer. But I also think, Some of the Instagram accounts, you know, the American Sexual Health Association, I think, is a great first resource. It's it's not necessarily a government agency, but it has a lot of palatable information and it's updated. They recently updated their website. They've got some great tools. So that's a great space to start Yes. And and thank you so much for sharing that. And and I bring up the the comfortability and asking the right questions at the doctor because I mean, I'll share a personal story. I so I have HSV1. I've had it since I was a kid. I actually don't know the origin of how I got HSV1. But when I became sexually active, I never knew what it meant when I had an oral outbreak what it meant when I was engaged in any sort of intimacy with anybody else and going to the doctor and asking these questions at such a young age I felt like I was so shamed because to be honest you might have been right I don't like to say that but um I've heard horror stories from people and you know I've read research that the sexual health consultation is actually a moral occasion right yes it's a base where you know, no matter your background or your training professionally, your personal biases, your unconscious biases are going to make themselves known. And I think we need more expansive and extensive training to support our medical health professionals, especially as it relates to offering a more inclusive sexuality, sexual health space. Absolutely. And I mean, it's so hard in like, especially... I, and I mean, this kind of segues into my my next question for you, which is about sexual confidence, because, you know, at, when you are at a tender age and, you know, I think especially in high school, I, I think a lot of people 
aren't in a place, you're kind of following the leader, you're following the pack. If you stand out, it's a little, it feels like you're, you're breaking away from like the social norms. Mm-hmm. And so I think like there's a lot of herd mentality. I think it honestly goes into college too. Um, but so how did you get to this place of sexual confidence? Because you have such determination and you really walk your talk when it comes to your self-worth and your boundaries that we were speaking of earlier. And when we were even texting the other day, just your your intuition, it's so strong. So I know that you probably weren't always like this. So, so how did it get that way? How did you get to this place of confidence? Oh no, I, to be honest with you, I have had some really challenging relationships, not just romantic friendships with family members that have required me to stand in my personal beliefs. And that's, hasn't always been easy. I do better with writing. Um, but you know, I was in an emotionally abusive relationship with someone. And after that ended, I said, never again, I said, never again, will I acquiesce to this person's, uh, needs before my own, I will never again, listen to, you know, I will never again, prioritize this person over my own intuition, especially when something feels off. And so really tuning into myself and using tools, it might sound silly to some people, but using tools like tarot or meditation or something like taking a ritualistic bath has really allowed me to get into myself and kind of grow my self-awareness seed. This year, I actually experienced my first rejection for having herpes. And it's something I want to write about uh, because it's has never happened to me before in over five years. And I really just sat in shock about it. it. It was one of those things where this person's stigma was very present, very palpable. But I'm not just going to be the girl that does everything but penetration, you know, like that's just not my thing. <laughs> and um, knowing when to walk away and when to leave relationships has always been challenging for me. So this for me was a real test of, am I going to fall into my same patterns that I know I historically have? Or am I going to stand up for myself? Let, you know, let the feelings simmer and move forward with the knowledge to speak to a greater purpose. that's my own. Yes. And I mean, what better test to not only like your growth, but also to get back to relating to maybe some of your newer audience members who are also dealing with rejection. And it really brings it back to kind of like your grounding purpose, your mission. Right. And I almost, you know, I remember telling this person, like, you know, I went through my whole story and he's like, well, you know, to be honest, I'm just really scared of having an STI forever. And I'm like, okay, stigma. But you know me, like, I'm like, here's my Instagram. Here's all my, like, ask me questions. Look at my writing. I like, you know, I'm not just a girl that has researched her life away on herpes. I'm an expert. And so to me, it was almost this professional insult as well. So that was really um, Mm, challenging to navigate. And I I definitely think there's a little resentment on my behalf. And that's my self-awareness speaking there. (laughs) But I, I would be lying if I said there wasn't. It's just like that ability. It's that person's ability to sit with themselves. And, you know, I I think, I think a rejection from herpes is often about so much more than just herpes. It's typically around what we think about herpes and what we've been taught about herpes. 
And for this person to not ask questions or say, hey, I heard this, is that true? To me is a place of willful ignorance. And that just says to me that they're not ready to be that, to be that partner, you know, whether sexually or otherwise, right? Yeah, yes. I'm curious what your sexual wellness routine is looking like these days. What does that entail for you? Lots of baths. I'm a bath person. <laughs> um, you know, just my desire fluctuates with stress levels and typically it's lower if I'm more stressed. So needless to say, COVID has been challenging to, not even challenging, but it's disrupted my self, my sexual wellness oh, routine. Yeah. But typically baths are really meditative for me, even just like, you know, sitting in nudity. Um, I do a lot of photo shoots, socially distant, you know, I've taken a lot of selfies of myself that I would say, I would say boudoir is a big part of my sexual health and sexual wellness, even if it's just a selfie or a tripod. And I love posting them because I'm like, Hey, I look banging and it might be COVID, but I'm feeling myself and I'm going to post the selfie. (laughs) (laughs) I love it so much. I mean, I think routine, especially now has just become so... I think it's almost become a survival mechanism, uh-huh. especially in isolation. It's really forced us to think like what what practices serve us, what practices don't serve us. So I love that you take pictures of yourself because there's just nothing better than just honestly feeling so sexy in your own skin and honoring that however it shows up. Yeah. And you know, it's not that I need validation from others or likes or whatever. I'm just like... I've been through so much in my life, whether it was, you know, unlearning herpes and STI stigma to getting over difficult relationships with friends or partners or family members. So, I, you know, you deserve to revel in your value. And I feel that I exemplify that in my personal life. Oh, that's so beautifully said. So what do outbreaks look like for you nowadays? They are non-existent, which is really interesting to me, right? Like if you if you didn't know I had herpes Um, or if partners didn't know I had herpes, or if I wasn't public about herpes, they would never be able to tell. And so then that just means it's asymptomatic? Correct. And so that means it's less likely to transmit to partners, although it's still possible. But if I'm, you know, sexually, being sexually active with someone, I have a Valtrex prescription that I will fill because, you know, I don't experience any side effects that doesn't cause me any harm. But if that's a comfort for them, I'm happy to do that, you know, and take that as a is a sexual boundary that, you know, a shared sexual boundary. I actually myself have slowly become more and more asymptomatic with HSV-1 outbreaks. I mean, when I was younger, it was such a thing and it was so triggered by stress. Actually, let's talk about that for a second. Um, uh, How stress really triggers an outbreak. Oh my gosh. It's people have no idea. I actually had a friend, she has oral HSV-1 and she texted me and she's like, you know, she's freaking out. She's like, can I, can I get, can my friend get this? If I, you know, if she took a sip of this and I'm like, you know, probably not if your saliva is not all over it or something like that. Um, she's like, I've been so stressed with everything. And I'm like, you know, I'm like, well, that makes sense. That's a trigger for outbreaks. Yeah. For some people it's sunlight. Um, for, you know, for some people it could be a certain medication or, you know, what have the food. It It depends on your body. Like that's the weird thing about herpes. Like there are typical, symptoms, they're atypical presentations, they're, you know, there's, there's no quote unquote norm, normal, right? And that's why I think really knowing your body and how your body responds, like you said, you're aware that you're having less frequent outbreaks. 
to me that says, okay, this person is a really aware of their body and how their body responds to stress or uh, what have you. Yeah. I mean, like I can, (laughs) when I look at kind of my last outbreak and just the amount of work and awareness and growth that's happened in my life, it makes sense. Like I, I, I work really hard to manage a certain type of stress. It's a really specific and acute type of stress when, when I get that, that type of outbreak. So it's, it's really fascinating. Like when you understand the language of your body. And I think something that people with herpes, whether it's oral or genital, aren't taught is how to care for themselves during an outbreak you know how Mm. how do you get not only self-care but community care you know my like I have friends that run support groups that people we we heal in community right those are important aspects but we also need to have like you said a a sexual health routine or a wellness routine having you know your go-to response to an outbreak like revel in yourself it's it's not a punishment it's something that says hey I'm stressed I really need to care for my body right now. And this is how I choose to do it. Has your routine shifted since the pandemic started? So I'm usually a morning person and I will admit that this, you know, we shifted time. It's there's less sunlight and I'm having a lot of trouble waking up earlier. You know, now that I don't have a workplace to go to or a physical gym to go to, I just go downstairs. So I've been sipping my coffee way longer in the morning coffee has remained consistent the coffee is the first thing I go to in the morning aside from petting my cat um you know that's 101 wake up Emily is get her a cup of coffee ASAP I typically write at night I've been writing a lot like winter and the colder weather is my hermit season Mm. and I actually just posted about this today with the holidays coming up I'm really looking forward to spending time alone and reflecting on some of the experiences that I've had this year and turning some of them into feelings and words that I can share with the world in a meaningful way. I, I'm curious what your your writing process is. Is it sure. just turning inward or are you kind of trying to create for a larger audience? Mostly it's turning inward. So the last couple pieces I have written have actually stemmed from a really, it's not like a hateful place, but I had anger within me. Mm-hmm. And so when I have a feeling like that, that's so overwhelming, I call it bleeding. It bleeds out. You know, I can't deny it. I'll stay up late writing. Again, not a night person until I get it out. Some of what I write is for myself and some of what I write is for the world. And I, I think there are certain things that feel good when you're typing them. But when you, you know, when you're editing, when I'm in the process of editing, I'm like, do I really need this sentence in there? Is that just, you know, my emotion, really? Mm. But lately, I've been able to take a lot of my anger and turn it into a purposeful, passionate, and quite meaningful piece that I'm really proud of. Um, I could talk to you forever. (laughs) I know. We have chemistry. We have chemistry. Um, if there's one thing you wish people knew about taking control of their sexual health, what would it be? That's a spicy question. It is spicy. I think you have to get comfortable with not just yourself, but removing your ego or what you, you know, I always talk about what we think we know, right? Like we walk around with, you know, what our parents teach us, what our school system taught us, what our caregivers taught us. And we don't realize how those belief systems influence our life, especially as it relates to sexual health, and especially if you didn't receive much sex education. So I think we have to be willing to let go of what we think we know 
to lead a more pleasurable, vulnerable, and empowering sexual life. I think that the more we can exercise that within ourselves, it's just going to be be and make for a really positive experience just with how you lead your life in yeah, and in, outside in and of the out bedroom. Of bedroom. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. Emily, thank you so much for your time. Thank you just for sharing your knowledge and your insight here. It's so valuable and just thank you for for what you do and thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for offering me the space. So tell us where we can further connect with you online. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at sex education. That's sex E-L-D-U-Cation. It's my initials. And you can find me on my website at emilydepass.com. All right, guys, go check out Emily's work. It's so incredible. And please make sure you rate and review this show and go give Emily a follow online. I will catch you next week. And thanks so much for tuning in. Thank you for listening to The Bedside Podcast. If you liked this episode and want to follow along with similar stories and interviews, be sure to check out our Instagram at The Bedside and thebedside.co online. Make sure to subscribe, leave a review, and of course, share with your friends. It's the best way you can support us and our good sex mission. Thank you for listening. Bye.